The Retirement and IRA show represents the words and views of the show hosts exclusively and should not be construed as investment, legal, or tax advice. All information is believed to be from reliable sources. However, we make no representation as to its completeness or accuracy. All economic and performance information is historical in nature and is not indicative of any future results. Any indices mentioned on the show are unmanaged and cannot be invested indirectly. Diversification and asset allocation strategies do not assure profit or protect against loss. Never make any investment or financial decisions based on information offered on this show without first consulting your financial, legal, or tax advisor. Financial planning services offered through Jim Solnier and Associates, LLC, a registered investment advisor. This is the Retirement and IRA Show coming to you from beautiful northern Colorado. Join us as certified financial planner Jim Solnier, as well as Colorado State University finance instructor and certified financial planner Chris Stein, teach you about IRAs, 401ks, annuities, social security, pension plans, and estate planning in a fun and enjoyable show. Whether you are listening live in Colorado or streaming from their website or iTunes podcast, Jim and Chris want you to know that they're available to help you plan for your retirement. Just visit their website at jimhelps.com. That's Jim, H-E-L-P-S dot com. And click the Meet the Team button on the homepage. Now here's Jim and Chris with today's show. Welcome to the Retirement and IRA Show Q&A edition for this fine December day in 2023. Q&A edition of the Retirement and IRA Show, that is. Um, yeah, I'm not going to banter a whole lot, especially not with myself, since uh, I've got to keep the show nice and tight today. So I finally found a good used starter car for my youngest daughter who's finally turning driving age and I got to get down and get license plates for it this afternoon. So she's itching to drive it. So we want to be all legal and such. So, uh, Jim, hopefully you have a big batch of short questions. I got a short batch of big questions. Oh, that might work too. (laughs) But you get paper plates. She didn't get a paper plate when you bought the car. I'm not all highfalutin like you and go to a dealer to buy a used car. Ah. All right, well. Those of us. you did, you have a paper plate. I would, but I don't because <laughs> I bought it, bought it from an individual. So. Yeah. All right. Yeah, when you're looking no for, problem. When you're looking for a, a cheap starter car for people, uh, for a young driver, uh, a dealership is, in my opinion, not the way to go because you need to buy something that is already kind of damaged pre comes pre-damaged so you don't feel bad when they scrape it up and stuff so at least that's well, my that's my approach. everybody's wondering myself yeah. included i'm sure mm-hmm. what did you get her uh we found for her a 2001 subaru outback the official car of colorado wow that's uh nice I, i've had an outback since getting to colorado mm-hmm. and uh i had a 97 and kept that one for a, quite a long time mm-hmm. and now i have a 2009 that uh, I putz around with. I use it mostly for hiking. So mm-hmm. if you see me out hiking or the other day I went to the office and the weather was a little rainy slash snowy. So I took the Subaru. So, yeah, I like the Outback. So very good choice. Well, thank you. She's generally excited about it. I think she was imagining her first car being a little nicer, but that's just because she's our youngest and she's very spoiled. And... uh the other the other older kids are looking at it like, oh my gosh, I can't believe you got such a nice car, even though this thing's all 
worn out with two, especially in 2021 she yeah. doesn't realize that's pretty damn no, new. 2001 not 21 2001 oh, 2001 yeah, yeah. oh i'm thinking wow 2021 no, no, she no. did all right for herself. if i said 21 i misspoke it's 2001 <laughs> a fine 22 year old car perfect gotcha. to start with <laughs> well i'm sure she'll like it so congratulations to her and uh, she can putz around in it and go from there all righty. Well, folks, this is we're winding up the season. I, I hate I love fall and I hate fall both at the same time. I love it. It's my favorite time of year, September, October, November, December. Oh, I love those months. I hate them in the sense it goes by so fast. Yeah, it's only especially f- October, November and December. Yeah, it's only five I, I days to, to, to winter. It's where do those months go? I just don't get it. They go by so fast. And it just it irks me because I love them so much. And then um, summer, which, again, is bizarre. I hate hot, hot, dry weather. And I'm sure if I move back east, I'm going to hate hot, hot, humid weather. Uh, but summer seems to last a lot longer than fall. There's, I, I don't know. If, yeah. it, I think yeah. it's the holidays. I think you go from Thanksgiving, not Thanksgiving. Uh, what's that first one they dress all up? Halloween. You go kind of get into that Halloween mood. Of course, it's pumpkin spice latte season and PSL, as you call it. And then you go into Halloween and then you look forward to Thanksgiving. And then it's the whole Christmas season and then the New Year's season. And it just seems to fly by. And football's wrapping up and yeah. all the, the playoffs, contentions. And I don't know. And hunting season, everything's rolled into fall. And harvest for my garden, best time of year, goes by too fast. Just too much to squeeze right. in. I'm I'm done my lamp. What do you call it? lamenting? Is that what I'm doing? Yeah. <laughs> or yeah. or wasting time? One or the other, whichever you want to call it. All righty. So we're going to begin with let's let's make this exciting, Chris. Mm. Do you want to lead with Social Security or Irma? Social Security. Social Security, and Social Security it is. All right, this one, don't freak out on this one. This question, he's asking eight separate questions. Oh, my goodness. Well, I think in short, he's really just asking about the earnings test. Uh, And I'm under the impression he may be self-employed, so I'm not looking to throw you under the boat on this one. But I mean, um, under the bus. bus. Yeah. Thank you. Under the boat um, would be uncomfortable as well. True, true. It would be. They call that keel hauling. Call it what? Keel haul. Ke- keel haul? You haven't. You need to watch more pirate movies. When you get keel hauled, do they attach you to a rope and drag you under? Oh, the and they drag boat? you under. Yes, yeah. yes. Okay. I didn't know that's what they called it. No. There was a scene in that in Black Sails, which was a pirate yes, show that was on show. Classic keel hauling. Yep. Yeah, they they did that with uh, Blackbeard, although Blackbeard was never keelhauled, as you say. So it was a little bit of uh, historical inaccuracy, but they showed that being done, pulling someone uh, around the boat. And that hurt because they had all those barnacles that you're yep. scraping up against. Plus, you got to hold your breath. You have to hold your breath, That's too. That's my nightmare. All right. Anyways, enough of that. There's like eight or nine separate questions where he's asking all these different what ifs regarding the earnings test. And I I haven't hard if I was going to have you answer this, but then I realized he's really just asking about the earnings test. And if your income is variable, how do they adjust for the earnings test? So you'll see. Stop me as I start asking some of his nine little what if this, what if that. Stop me when you have enough info and say, hey, I got it. I know what he's asking. And 
go from there. But what I meant by not throwing you under the bus, if you could, I believe, and I know you're the social security expert, not me, when it comes to the earnings test and you have variable income because you're self-employed, I believe they look at the hours you work, but Mm -hmm. I'll let you opine on that. I could be totally wrong on that, but Mm -hmm. I thought they looked at the hours um, and just uh, adjust if you are, quote unquote, retired or not based on how many hours you're dedicating to your job, not necessarily what you're earning. But I'll let you uh, explain that. Okay, he begins. I like it. Hope this question isn't too long. Uh, And he clarifies it's from his sister, not him. Uh, He says, my question or her question isn't necessarily long, but it's got a lot of different situations. I'll admit it. like nine what ifs. Um, Okay. See if he gives a hint first. Let me see. Um, Nope, I do not see a hint of where he's from. I have no idea what state he's from. Um, Okay. If it pops up, I'll, I'll let you know. There's a long email, so he might have asked the question here somewhere. Okay. He said, I'm trying to type this out as clearly as possible for such an unclear situation. Another expert from the newspaper said, this is the sister. The sister wrote this to him and he sent it to us. So if you could forward it to your guy, I guess you're his guy, Chris. If you could forward this to your guy, I would be interested to see his answer. Well, she won't see it, but she can hear it. Another expert from the newspaper sent me an answer. And even though that official answer could be interpreted more than one way. So I guess she's saying his answer confused me. Okay. My official retirement age, according to Social Security, is 66 and six months. That will be November 15th of 2023. Well, oddly, Chris, today is December 15th, 2023, as we record this and read her question. So happy one month belated birthday, listener. Okay. My income is unpredictable coming from a variety of royalties and consulting contracts. Again, she doesn't say if she's self-employed, though, Chris. Some sources might not submit 1099s. For my circumstance, does this mean I can receive up to $56,520 any time between January and October, but anything I receive after that in November and December is going to be allowable. And then she goes on to nine different scenarios, Chris. What if I receive payments in 2023, but I did the work in 2022? What if I did work in August, but don't get paid till December? Does the 56520 is it gross or net after business expenses and deductions? What is counted from a payment that had income tax withheld? Do you want me to keep reading her, her what-ifs or are you getting the gist? I think I see where she's going with this, which is... I can read more if you'd like. I got four more. Read a little bit more. Um. If I earn more than 56520 between January and October, will I pay tax on all of that plus 85% of my Social Security? Now she's getting into taxes on that one. Mm-hmm. 
If I end up earning too much and paying a penalty where my Social Security is reduced, does that reduce the amount of taxable Social Security? Hmm. So she's got a mixed bag of stuff in here where the, the beginning part of that, I think, is with confusion how this is applied for self-employed folks. If you're receiving a 1099, you're not a W-2 wage earner, you're going to be kind of lumped oh, Chris, in. Chris, can I interrupt you before sure. you get too deep? Okay. Towards the bottom of this long email, uh, it says, I just realized I forgot to say this. While the total amount of money that comes to me in 2023 will be more than 56520 you might want to begin by explaining to people why she's fixated on 56520 uh, That's a very important number, and it has yeah. to do with her full retirement age, as I'm sure you know, Chris. So she says, while the total amount of money that comes to me in 2023 will be more than 56520 I believe the consulting money is considered proceeds of my business. So she is self-employed. Then we deduct business expenses. And what's left added uh, after that is added to other personal income that I will receive. So maybe after all these damn questions, I shouldn't have to worry about it anyways. And next year, I won't have to give it a second thought. Mm -hmm. So I think after she asked everything, she might realize maybe none of this really matters. It's true. Uh, with self-employed income, it's called net earnings from self-employment. And it's be the earnings like she's getting from those 1099 consulting gigs and other could be Schedule C, self-employment income, could come a variety of ways on your tax return. But you're allowed to net out reasonable business expenses. So if that drops you below that 56,520 that she's mentioning, and that number represents the earnings test limit for the year that you turn your full retirement age, if you turn your full retirement age in 2023. This is a number that changes all the time. And uh, most people are familiar with the earnings test in prior years, which uh, for 2023 was $21,240. Um, but in the year you turn your full retirement age, the earnings test is much higher at 56,520. And the way the earnings test works is if you go over that earnings limit and you're co collecting your um, Social Security benefits, you will have reduced Social Security benefits $1 for every $2 over that 21240 that I mentioned in the years prior to you reaching your full retirement age. And then in, in the months leading up to your full retirement age, if you have earnings more than 56520 they'll reduce it your Social Security $1 for every $3 over that limit. Um, and then once you turn your full retirement age, there is no earnings test at all. So that's what she means by next year. I won't have to give it a second thought because, and that's true next year, this all doesn't matter. You can earn as much as you want. There's no earnings test, but in this transitionary year, which she's talking about here in 2023, if she doesn't claim social security, then it doesn't affect her first of all. So this is only if you're simultaneously earning money prior to your full retirement age and collecting social security. So if she never filed for social security this year, also not something to worry about. But if she's collecting Social Security, now she's got to deal with this earnings test. And this earnings test can be applied on an annualized basis, that 56,520, which if she doesn't exceed that, then it isn't going to matter when during the year she earned it. It's all good. It's all uh, uh, likely fine. With the one 
kind of weirdness to this whole thing in that um, um, the substantial service situation, which is if she actually does exceed that earnings test as a self-employed person, there can be these timing issues between when you earn it and when you receive the money. So first, let me tackle that. In general, Social Security determines all these things based on when you earn it. That's what's called the earnings test, not the I received money test. It's the earnings test when you earned it. So if you earned money in, say, 2022, but it doesn't get paid to you in 2023, that doesn't count towards 2023 earnings tests. It's a 2022 earning, even though the check didn't come to you till later. So same thing with self-employed individuals is when you're doing the work. And they, they oftentimes, because of these kind of fluctuating cash flows, they determine uh, things for the earnings test for self-employed people a little differently. They don't just look at the dollars. They also look at the number of hours that you're providing substantial services to your business. And the definition of that gets a little bit into the weeds. What's, you know, depends on if you're a highly skilled person or, or, or not. And I'm trying not to go too far into the weeds on this because this applies to very, very few people. And I think for her, it's not going to end up mattering because all in all, if you don't exceed that annual limit, you don't have anything to worry about. If you are going to exceed it, then it's going to matter when you earned it. When did you actually earn it and how much was earned after you turned your full retirement age, which is free and clear. You can do it as much as you want. So for November and December, since she has a November uh, month of turning full retirement age, it becomes free and you know free for all for how much you earn. If you exceeded it and they're going to have to try to figure out how much happened before you turned your full retirement age, then they, they actually look at doing some averaging between the months uh, that you're considered self-employed and not retired. They're going to look at your substantial services situation. But there's a formula. There's a, there's a step-by-step way they approach this. And if you go to the, the POMS, the Program Operations Manual System, P-O-M-S for Social Security, they spell it out uh, for you in, in somewhat legalese. I would say instead of wasting time interpreting all that, the best thing that she could have done if she needed to do it before now, uh, it's a little bit, I don't know when you got this email, but it's a little late in the year for this, but just going into Social Security and telling them the situation and how much you're, you've earned, not received, but earned in those months prior to your full retirement age. And if you are receiving, uh, I'm assuming she received, she's been claiming Social Security, because if you're not getting Social Security, this is all a moot point. Um, And uh, they can plug it into the computer system and it'll do all the figuring. But all the way the computer system works is defined in the POMS inside the program operations manual system for Social Security. The best way to probably find that for the layperson is to just search or Google for SSA earnings test POMS, P-O-M-S in all caps. Um, and you'll get right to not to an article from a newspaper or some podcast reference like we've got going here, but rather right to the horse's mouth. And uh, you can read through exactly how they uh, apply this stuff. But again, understanding, interpreting all that, that's going to be a lot more work than just going into the office, seeing what they say. And then, and then depending on what they say, see if that seems reasonable, given your basic understanding of the rules. And if something's wrong, you know, if it seems off, have them, you know, ask them to explain it in detail and point to where in the palms that it actually is supposed to work like this. 
that would be probably what I would do to be efficient in this and not try to, you know, sometimes figuring out how the car was built uh, is not necessarily to go in and get the car repaired. Um, so um, now one other thing, she was kind of going off on these questions about if her Social Security is reduced, what happens to the taxes? Well, your you'll, your taxes on your Social Security is going to be based on what you actually earn. So if your Social Security is being reduced due to the earnings test, you only pay taxes to the extent the Social Security is being paid to you. You're not being taxed on on benefits that you're not being paid, uh, which is, I think, where she was going with that, with those questions about uh, how much will be you know subject to Social Security tax if they're reducing my payment. It's all based on the actual payment that you're received. Uh, that you're receiving, not the the before adjustment amount that you may have been collecting before. So I hope that's somewhat helpful to uh, to her. But I think in, it is. Her question general, was calm. Yeah, yeah I, I think it was. I really wanted this question and, and asked it, even though it was a little bit confusing for some people, I'm sure, because I wanted you to cover the earnings test, self-employed, things like that. Yeah, the self-employed yeah. piece gets... Uh, it gets a little muddy, I will say, because it's um, showing them when you actually earned it. You're going to have to prove a lot of this stuff. If you're arguing that that those earnings came in after you turned your full retirement age instead of before, you're going to have to you know show them these things uh, because when they get your information, when they get your information from the IRS. You're not telling the IRS when exactly you you earned it. It's the reporting of the IRS is essentially on an annual basis for income purposes. Social Security really doesn't know when during the month. So if it matters when you earned it during the year for earnings test calculations, you're going to have to go into Social Security with documentation and convince them that what you're claiming is true, and they should you know calculate it the way you're arguing. So you might have to produce a lot of paperwork with this, but. There's a lot of self-employed people out there, so they, they deal with this fairly regularly. Okay. Alrighty, pot two. We always begin with Chris. Pot one, Social Security. Pot two, Irma. All right, another long question. I don't think I'm going to read In fact, I know I won't be reading this uh, entire long question. The long and the short of it is, Chris, he's wondering about Irma when you have a Medicare Advantage plan. Mm. And a Medicare Advantage plan, folks, for those who don't know, personally, not a huge fan of them for a variety of reasons. But they're pushed heavily, usually on evening TV that older people will watch. So as I'm watching my reruns of of whatever I happen to be watching, whether it's Friends or uh, going back even further, that uh, Wii TV that shows reruns from the 60s and 70s that I like to watch. Uh, I always am bombarded with those commercials. And they often feature some old-time actor, and they promise you that you're going to get all these wonderful benefits. Anyways, personally, not a fan of Medicare Advantage for a variety of reasons that transcends today's discussion. But he... On a traditional, folks, Medicare Advantage plan, your prescription drugs are included. So you don't generally have a separate prescription Pot D plan like you would with traditional Medicare. With traditional Medicare, you will have that as well as a Medigap policy and a prescription Pot D policy. 
your Medicare premiums will, excuse me, IRMA surcharges will impact your Medicare premiums and your prescription Part D premiums. So I had to set this stage, Chris, because I'm going to skip a lot of what he said in his email. But in short, he's saying, hey, I'm going to have a Medicare Advantage plan. I have a prescription Part D. I don't have a prescription Part D, but I have been told Irma is going to affect me even though I don't have a prescription Part D. So let me get to a little bit of his question, but that's the gist. So far, so good? I think so, yep. I think so, yep. Okay. I think he has – oh, I wanted to begin with the beginning, <laughs> the little bit self-congratulatoriness uh, on his behalf and my behalf. You've, you've known me well, Chris. You've known me for a while. He begins this question, hi, Jim and Chris. We have some things in common, and I think he's talking about me, not you. He goes on, we both love landscaping and gardening. We both love dogs. We also remain single well into advanced age. I was married at 51. You seem to be contemplating it now around age 60. I am 60, folks. I have been single my entire life. I won't necessarily say I'm contemplating it now, but it's definitely something I would not run away from uh, any longer at my age, and I would be receptive to. Um, Let's see. He says, it is a big change, meaning marriage, but I'm glad I took the plunge. You should be very good friends, though, and have similar interests and tolerate each other's as as gosh eccentricities oh eccentricities and how do you say that eccentricities eccentricities better much better thank you god i was about to call the ambulance on that one For those who don't know, you do not listen to this podcast to master the English language, and you shouldn't put difficult words in your emails. Like you probably did it on ex- purpose. <laughs> Eccentricities—that's a yeah. tough word. Okay. Okay. He says. Also, my wife is ten years younger than me, which is how much younger my girlfriend is. Okay. So, anyways, his point was we have a lot in common. I think he—he's right. We—we we seem to. I am looking at retiring next year when I am 69, and I will start Medicare, either through my employer's retiree health care plan, which is a Medicare Advantage plan, and that one is quite attractive to me, or I will enroll in traditional Medicare that will also include a prescription Part D drug plan, and I will also get a Medigap policy. So he's evaluating, folks, both sides of the coin. Should I go traditional Medicare? And you always want to get a supplemental Medicare plan called a Medigap plan if you go with traditional Medicare. Because traditional Medicare is only a 60, excuse me, an 80-20 plan. They don't cover everything. You have deductibles and coverages on everything. So you get these supplemental plans to cover the shortages that Medicare by design does not cover. You do not get just Medicare. You definitely, if you go in traditional Medicare, want to get the Medigap plan. And then under the Bush administration, as you probably remember, he expanded Medicare greatly with a prescription drug benefit, and that became Medicare Part D. Now, 
Medicare Advantage, otherwise known as Part C Medicare. Medicare Advantage plans, uh, just like I described, they kind of market it as all in one. Do not fall for those gimmicky ads where they're going to get you to try to call because you're going to get food delivered to you and higher social security and all this other crap. It's never going to happen. Trust me, it's never going to happen. But they say it because the, depending on what zip code you live in, because if you look too closely to those commercials, you might hear someone saying, oh, my, I called to see if my zip code was included. Your zip code isn't included. Trust me on that, folks. You've got to live in some very poor, out-of-the-way areas or very poor inner-city areas to have your zip code even count. And even then, you're not going to get what they're promising you. And the government finally... Medicare is finally cracking down on this because they know it's bogus BS what they're doing on a lot of these commercials. So you're going to see some big changes uh, in these commercials. Thankfully, they're, they're paying attention. Okay, so he continues. I understand paying the Part B surcharge. So when you're subject to medic, excuse me, when you're subject to Irma, folks, that means your income is high, so you have to pay a higher Medicare premium. That's Part B. He is saying if he takes the Medicare Advantage plan, he understands he has to pay a higher Part B surcharge. You, there is still going to be a surcharge that will be levied with a Medicare Advantage plan under IRMA for Part B. Because he says the Medicare Advantage plan is secondary coverage. So he's correct on these things. Medicare doesn't go away. It's just the Advantage plan is, is in the middle there and collecting the premiums and stuff. Okay. I still receive Pots A and Pot B primary coverage through Medicare, and the Medicare Advantage plan will be secondary. But what I don't understand is, why do I still have to pay a Pot D, Irma surcharge, if I have a Medicare Advantage plan? I am not using or buying a Pot D prescription drug benefit. But instead, I'm using a Medicare Advantage plan for my prescription coverage. How is that IRMA surcharge even going to be paid? Are they going to deduct it for my Social Security once I begin collecting it? If so, Social Security would deduct the Part D IRMA surcharge even though I don't have a Part D prescription drug plan. I just don't understand this. Um, I think the best way to understand this is that when you get a Part D plan, so before you start talking about Medicare Advantage, where a bunch of the stuff is rolled together, a Part D plan is a plan with a private insurance company. So just like the supplemental plans, the Medigap plans, they are through private insurance companies. The only thing that's delivered directly from the government is the original Medicare, Part A and B. The D plan that we're talking about here for prescription drugs, they instituted that much, much later, and but is still a partnership with private insurance companies. So they contract with these private insurance companies to offer these Part D plans. 
So if you think about it that way, it's the same situation as with the Advantage plans. The Advantage plans are private insurance companies that have contracted with the uh, U.S. government to provide these additional um, pieces of coverage within their networks and include a prescription drug plan. So it's you can ha- you kind of have a Part D plan baked into those Advantage plans, and both are with private insurance companies. So I'm not sure why there'd be that you know much of a surprise that it would apply to both of them because they're at their heart they're actually very similar types of relationships to the medicare system so technically with part d and i'll quote the 2024 irma because i happen to have it in front of me the 2024 irma premiums for part d is a certain dollar amount plus your premium so unlike the part b irma which increases by percentage uh, your Medicare Part B premiums themselves. Uh, here, you actually pay a flat dollar amount depending on the tier of IRMA that you're in. And and uh, for a married filing joint couple in 2024, uh, the the uh, IRMA trigger would be $206,000. Uh, that, of course, would be based on your earn, your income from 2022, unless you are appealing that and and having them use a newer year via the SSA 44 form, but there'd be no extra premium. If you are a married filing joint couple with a modified adjusted gross income between two hundred and six and $258,000, uh, the surcharge is $12.90. It's $12.90 plus whatever you're paying on your Part D. For you, you're not paying anything on Part D separately, uh, it's baked into your Part C plan, which may or may not have a premium. But they recognize that. If you're on something with a, if your premium is zero, they're going to add $12.90 to your zero premium and charge it to you. So like the other IRMA, they're going to charge you that IRMA on your, uh, directly from Social Security. Uh, they're going to take it out of your Social Security benefits like they would your Medicare Part B premiums with the IRMA adjustment applied to it. And you would pay to your insurance company the premium for either the Part D uh, policy or, in your case, the Medicare Advantage policy that may or may not have a premium uh, attached to it. So the two, you know, they're, if they didn't do it this way, it'd be very unfair, actually, and very unequal that you have a kind of a get-out-of-jail-free card for Irma by choosing a Medicare Advantage plan. There's no reason for them to do that. There's... there's uh, Irma is meant to bolster the finances of Medicare, and they just chose to apply it this way through increased Part B premiums and these extra dollar surcharges on Part D. The only way to get out of Part D is to not have prescription drug coverage through Medicare or a Medicare-related service. You have that option. That's the one get-out-of-jail-free card. Just you know, go out of pocket for all your prescription drugs. Uh, otherwise, if you're in one of the Medicare-based or related insurance programs, Part D premiums are going to apply if you have prescription dr- prescription drug coverage. I missed what you were saying there. I apologize. I was looking up emails. I just want to clarify. Were you mm-hmm. saying that if somebody did not have a prescription Part D planned, they wouldn't have to pay the surcharge? Correct. Okay, and and maybe that's true. I I don't know, but I'm cautioning people. You might not want to do that because there will be penalties, severe penalties, if you add a prescription drug plan later. If you skip it, trying to avoid IRMA and think you're going to add it later, 
they're going to nail you with lifetime penalties because you didn't buy the absolutely any of that. And we weren't talking about going back on it. I was just saying, you know, yeah. Really I just no wanted to clear the air. You know how our listeners than, think. Yeah, oh, uh, oh, gee, I, I can. I'll just stay off it so I don't have to pay the Medicare surcharge, and then I'll go on it once I'm done doing whatever I'm doing, and I'm trying to keep my income low or something. I don't want someone to think that that's a viable uh, recommendation because you will pay significant penalties for not being on a Medicare prescription pot D plan when you're supposed to be on it. Okay, we beat that horse. Oh, wait, uh, I do want to ask his hint question. I kind of like it. I'm going to kind of change it around a little bit, though. So he lives in the state with the... um, in the middle of the most Super Bowl wins. In other words, he's saying California has 10 Super Bowl wins between the 49ers, Raiders, and Rams. New England has the third most Super Bowl wins because of the Pats. Woohoo! Although we suck this year, folks. But anyways, he lives in the state in the middle. Number two, what state has the second most Super Bowl wins? After California, but before Massachusetts. So obviously a state with one damn good team or a mm-hmm. couple of mediocre teams. And you already off of the choices are California and Massachusetts? California is out uh, and Massachusetts is out. And he, he lists California, did it with the com- combination of the 49ers who won five, Raiders won three, Rams won two. That's a total of ten. New England is third with Massachusetts having the New England Patriots winning six. His state is in the middle. Yeah, so I'm thinking of maybe some of the dynasty. So maybe maybe Cowboys, but I'm also thinking, you know, Steelers won all those Super Bowls back in the 70s. I didn't think of Texas. That's right. Um, Oops, I've kind of given away the hint here. So what's your answer, your final answer? uh, Well, because the Pennsylvania has two teams working on it with the Eagles, too. I'm going to say Pennsylvania because mostly because of Pittsburgh. You are correct. But I didn't think of that because Texas has the Cowboys and the Oilers. Yeah. And don't they have another one? They no. Florida has three. That's what I understand. Florida has three. They got Tampa, Jacksonville, and Miami. But they're they're not even on here. Uh, But you're right. Pennsylvania. The Steelers have six, going back into the '70s when they were by far the dominant team. Uh, And then uh, the Eagles, who cheated their way to a Super Bowl win against my (laughs) beloved New England Patriots in 2016. Uh Okay. So now we're going to get to some annuity questions. I'm going to kill uh, two stones with one bird on this because we are definitely running late. So I'm going to do the new question of the week is also going to be the insu- um, the annuity question of the week. See how I did that? Very nice. Although we're going to kill the birds with the stones instead of the other way around. That's what I said. Okay. We're going to kill two birds with one stone. Go ahead. Um, I can't find the question, though, now you got me all screwed up. There it is. Okay. Um, This is one that I wanted to answer last week, but um, we didn't have time. So I'm going to squeeze it in this week. Hello, Jim and Chris. And also a shout out to Jason. Uh, If we had a Jason, he would greatly appreciate that. I think he means Jacob. Clearly, he does not have a mastery of names like I do. Mm -hmm. Clearly. Clearly. Okay. Okay. Oh, he gives a quick hint, so we're going to go very quickly. He says, my state 
has two big cities, one in the east, one in the west, both begin with the same letter, which also matches the letter my state begins with. What? Isn't that going to be Pennsylvania again? Pennsylvania again. Very good. It's Pittsburgh and Philadelphia and Pennsylvania. Pittsburgh, Philly, Pennsylvania. I only got that, folks, because I already was, my mind was already on Pennsylvania (laughs) from the last question. That's the only reason. Okay. He says, I'm a big fan of your show, particularly, particularly, Jesus. The spoken language. (laughs) Don't make me laugh because particularly, particularly, yes, I got it, Mm. of Jim's instant likability and mastery of the English language. And Chris's highly lucid explanations. He gives you a much Mm. better compliment than me. And the affection between the two of you. Isn't that sweet? We have affection. People think we like each other? (laughs) (laughs) Apparently, we have affection. All right. My main question. It's somewhat simple. I want to delay taking distributions from a deferred annuity I have in a tax-deferred retirement plan as long as possible. I want to maximize my eventual monthly payout. Let me pause there. I did get back a hold of this listener, folks, to ask him what type of account this deferred annuity was in because it indicated to me that it was a work account, and he was I was correct. It's a 403B plan. Mm. So I'm guessing this listener works for some sort of school system or hospital system, has a 403B plan. It's usually big in uh, government or nonprofits. Mm-hmm. So that's why I'm saying it's probably a school or a hospital. So a 403B plan, folks, it's dramatically different, but very, very similar to a 401K. It's a tax-qualified, deferred, uh, employer-sponsored retirement-style account. That will have required minimum distribution rules identical to 401ks and IRAs. Okay. So I do want to clarify that. I reached out to him to find out what type of account it's in. Okay. So he says, however, there will be RMD rules on this account or are these accounts exempt from RMD rules? Mm -hmm. Let's pause there. Chris, do you want to answer that question? Do 403B plans have RMD rules? They absolutely do. They are not exempt from RMDs. Perfect. And Chris is 100% correct, folks. So, yes, listener, your 403B will have RMD rules. Just because you own an annuity inside the 403B doesn't change anything. And we talk about this a lot for those of you considering annuities. Annuities have very convoluted distribution rules, very convoluted. So do IRAs and retirement accounts. But when an annuity is inside an IRA or a 403B in this case, Chris, what distribution rules take precedence? The distribution rules of the annuity or the distribution rules of the retirement account, whether it's an IRA or a 403B and now 401Ks because a secure two are going to have a lot of annuities in them. What distribution rules take precedence, annuity rules or the rules of the account? Once annuitized, the annuity rules take precedent. Prior to that, the regular RMD rules apply. Yeah, you you read more into it than I was getting at. You should have stopped with your head. Perfect. So what I was getting at is 
the rules of the account take precedence over the rules governing an IRA. IRA is just, uh, in the eyes of the IRS, what you have inside your retirement account is immaterial. The retirement account itself is going to be subject to certain RMD rules, and they take precedence uh, on it, except for a QLAC. It's a little different if you put a QLAC inside uh, a retirement account, then the QLAC has slightly different rules. Okay, so he says, are there RMD rules on these accounts or are they exempt? You already took care of that. If I delay taking distributions until the last possible year so I can maximize my income, can I delay them until the end of that year or do I have to take them at the beginning of the year? You want to answer that question? So if he delays them? If he delays the RMD till the end, so I'm going to guess age 73 or 75. He didn't tell me his age. Can he take his RMD at the end of the year, or does he have to take it at the beginning of the year? Um, He can technically take the first one all the way up until April 15th, the year following the year that you, or April 1st of the year following that you have that first RMD. But generally, you can take it any time during the year. The RMD is due at, on January 1st of the year that you turn, you know, the age of RMDs. But in that first year, they give you a little leeway and actually allow you to, to take it uh, up until April 1st of the following year. But that's pro- I don't think that's what he was asking. He's probably asking, yeah. do I have to pay, take it right at the beginning of the year or the end? Generally, any time during the year, that will satisfy the RMD. Right. Perfect. So, listener, Chris is 100% correct. Yeah, you... You can take it on December 31st. The IRS doesn't care. You're subject to it beginning January 1st of the year you're subject to RMDs. They call that, um, uh, gosh, now I just had a brain. It's uh, required beginning date. So beginning January 1st is the of the year you turn. Let's say your RMDs begin at 73. Listen, you didn't give us an age. January 1st of the year you turn 73, you have to t- is when RMD rules apply. But you can delay that first RMD to your required beginning date, which is April 1st of the following year. But if you delay it, you have to take two in that second year. Now, he's also kind of asking, that wasn't his main question, can I wait till December 31st and take it, essentially is what he's saying, or do I have to take it earlier? No, you can wait till December 31st to take it unless you delayed it till April 1st of the following year, then you must take it by April 1st. And then you still have to take a second one that year, which is for the year you delayed it to. And that one you could take right up to December 31st. It just has to be out by the end of the year. It's his next question that isn't going to work for him. He says, if I delay taking the distribution until the last possible point, can I delay them to the end of the year? And if I do, will I still have to take it for the full year? Or can I prorate the distribution for the month I take it? In other words, if I took it in December of that year, must I take it for the whole year? Mm. Yes. You can't take less yeah. by saying, oh, I waited till December, so I only have to take one twelfth of it. 
Oh, I took it in January. I've got to take the full amount. He's misunderstanding how the RMD is determined. Pardon? He's misunderstanding how the RMD is determined. By the time the year rolls around that you have the RMD, the dollar amount is already determined as of January 1st. Because Very good. Why don't you walk him through how yeah. you do that? Very good, Chris. That I wasn't going to go that route, but you're right. He is totally misunderstanding that. Yeah. So as of January 1st of the year that you have an RMD due, it is based on the balance of the account and or combination of accounts that, uh, that uh, are affected by this RMD, the account balance from December 31st, the day before January 1st. So on January 1, you have this RMD that's now set in stone what you owe. You now have the flexibility of taking it anywhere between January 1st and December 31st in a regular year. In the first year you owe RMDs, you get that extra you know, few months, that extra three months to, to uh, April 1st of the following year, but that's the exception. So I'll stop talking about that because that kind of breaks up the flow. But in each and, each and every year, your RMD for an account is, is determined as of January 1st. And doesn't matter when you take it, it's the same dollar amount. It's because it was based not on what's happening currently, but what, what the account balance was December 31st of the prior year. Right. And if they didn't do it that way, listener, people would just game the system mm-hmm. and take it out in December of every year, December 31st, and say, hey, I only have to take one 365th of it. I took it out on the last day. It doesn't work that way. Right. So... I like your train of thought. I understand you wanting to wait to maximize the income you can get from this 403B. But when you do begin taking distributions from it, the RMDs, yes, you're going to, whether you would take it on January 1st or December 31st, you've got to take the same dollar amount. He says, in case it matters, the main account of concern is a TIA annuity. Which, okay, so now he's in the educational realm. There's no mm-hmm. doubt in my mind. Oh, I can't say some hospitals do have TIA. But TIA is huge in the educational industry, folks. However, I also wonder the same question about my defined benefit pension plan. I am also deferring collecting that until the last possible moment. Because my income distributions for the rest of my life will be larger the longer I delay. So what he's saying, folks, is he he has the deferred annuity, the 403B plan, inside a TIA account. That's fine. We already addressed that. He also has a defined benefit pension plan. It's not unheard of to see that, especially in the educational realm. You have a pension plan, which is called a defined benefit plan. And you have a defined contribution plan, usually a 403B, where you put contributions in, you can choose your investments, it grows. A 403B is called a tax-deferred annuity, so it'll grow that way. And he's going to take money out more as distributions, not necessarily annuitizing it, even though TIA does allow you to take your 403B and turn it into a lifetime stream of guaranteed income. You can annuitize it if you'd like with TIA, or you can leave it and just take your RMDs or treat it as a liquid account. Now, your defined benefit pension plan is going to be very, very similar, listener. You can delay taking the distributions from it up until when you have to turn it on. 
And yes, your income benefits generally do rise the longer you wait, but the payment from a traditional pension plan will be the RMD for that pension plan. So that's a little bit different than having a defined contribution plan with an annuity in it or an IRA with an annuity in it. When you have a traditional pension, when you start taking your annuity payment from that pension, that's when you say to them, start giving me my income for life. That distribution, no matter what it is, is considered the RMD for that defined benefit pension plan. And there is no provision to come up with an account balance on that pension and determine if there was an account balance, what would the RMD be? And if your pension is greater than what that RMD would have been, you can use that RMD excess to offset other RMDs. There's no provision like that for a traditional defined benefit pension plan. That provision is section, is it 220 or 212? I forget, Chris, uh, of the SECURE Act. I think 220. That's causing a whole host of consternation in our industry Mm -hmm. because for the first time ever, they are saying if you have an annuity inside a 401k or a 403b or an IRA and it's annuitized and paying you a stream of income, in the past, pre-secure two, the rule was that account was just like a defined benefit pension plan. And the RMD of an annuitized annuity inside one of these accounts is the RMD for that account and cannot offset RMDs from other accounts. Under secure two, they threw that out the window. And they said, if you have a Annuity inside an IRA or a 401k or other type of employer plan, not a defined benefit pension plan. You can figure out the net present value of the annuity, determine if that was your actual value, what would the RMD be for that year? And if your distribution was greater than what the RMD would have been, if this was a lump sum of money, you can use that excess to offset your RMDs from other IRAs, 403Bs, 401Ks. The only problem is, Chris, they never explain how to figure out what? That present value. The net present value. Nobody knows how to do it. I mean, there's many ways. There's dozens of different ways to determine the net present value of an income stream. They didn't say which one or which one's plural they're going to allow. So there's so much uncertainty. And I keep cautioning people to not do it yet, even though it took effect immediately. You theoretically could do it. I have read articles on the forms that I follow of advisors contacting the insurance companies and saying, hey, can you provide us the net present value of this annuitized annuity so we can take advantage of uh, 220 or 212, whatever it is, and the insurance company's telling them point blank, no. So how do you determine it? We're waiting for clarity. Anyways, a little interesting. Uh, uh, I'm also going to make a prediction here 
that even once they clarify it, that the benefits to a person from taking advantage of this are going to be minimal, if any. You think so? I think so. I think so because it's, you know, all you're doing is finding a way like, like, you know, delaying to 75, having the RMD age out there for most people, it's really not that helpful. They need to be taking the money out before that anyway. So giving them, you know, relief on the RMD age, letting money pile up in those accounts, creating larger RMDs later on is just creating more of a ticking tax time bomb. And here's another way, if you're not going to take it out as an RMD, you're trying to keep it in there, you're just you know leaving more and more in there, they're going to tighten up the beneficiary rules, I think, you know, from the 10-year, and so that's going to, we're going to be back to the five-year. And I'm not sure this is going to end up benefiting very many people at all. People are in a big tizzy about this, trying to take advantage of it. I, I think the advantages to most people will be minimal. I see what you're saying. Because, and I see exactly where you're going with this. Put it this way, listeners. Right now, when you reach RMD age at 73, you're going to be required to take out about 37 to 3.9% of your account. Whereas somebody buying a single premium immediate annuity at age 73, right now, uh, depending on what their sex is, male or female, would probably get a payout somewhere about 68 to maybe 7.5. So clearly larger payout with the annuity and the difference between the two can be used to offset RMDs from other retirement accounts. But like Chris, so there's a benefit and everybody might be fixating on that thinking that's a wonderful benefit, but I see where you're going with this, Chris. What it simply means is you're always taxable deferred account is just going to keep growing and getting bigger and bigger and bigger and right. bigger because you're not being forced to take money mm-hmm. out of it. Yeah, it's not like and you they, escaped um, the taxes on it. You right. just were it's, able to leave it in there where it still is yet to be taxed. Right. And it's going to be left and hit to either your husband or wife as a widow or a widower who are going to be in smaller tax brackets or to your children who – Chris rightly pointed out, will most likely be subject to the 10-year rule. So they inherit a larger IRA, always taxable IRA, because you didn't take more money out of it because you didn't have to. But now they have to, but not over the rest of their lives like you could have done, but over a 10-year period. And chances are they are working and already in a fairly high bracket, and now they have to throw this income on top of it so the government wins. I see where you're going with this, Chris, in the long run. Mm-hmm. But in the short run, it seems appealing. Oh, I can leave more money in my IRA. Great. Now, for those people who take this and, and do this, and then they still pull money out via Roth conversion or something like that, so they don't allow that to happen, maybe you know that, that could look, be looked at as a net benefit. And I, I agree there are some net benefits to people on this, I think they're being overblown. I think there are people are thinking there's this is like this huge benefit that people are going to be able to uh, take advantage of, and I think the the benefits are going to be there, but just much smaller than people expect. And sadly, I think most of our listeners, the VG engineer types, VG for Vanguard folks, engineer whether you're an engineer or not, you think like one if you're listening to this podcast. So as you're crunching the numbers, making your spreadsheets, looking at things. I think they're going to pick up on the obvious and say, wow, I now have more tax planning opportunity. 
But the average person, folks, the average Joe Blow who doesn't listen to these types of podcasts, who doesn't know a, a, an ETF from a mutual fund, if it was staring them in the face, the people who just don't get into this and never will, they might be inclined to say, wow, if I don't have to take it out, I'm not going to. It's going to lower my taxes now. It's going to lower my taxes now. Mm-hmm. They're the ones who I agree with, Chris. After they die, I think the government's going to get more taxes than if they were being forced to take it out over their lifetime. Because don't forget, assets that you take out over your lifetime, yes, you have to pay taxes at your rates, which for most people will probably be lower than the people who are going to be inheriting it. And then those assets will receive a step up in basis at their death. Whereas assets inside the IRA will continue to compound and hopefully grow and never receive a step up in basis and always be taxed as income. Interesting. Okay, I don't want to bemoan that. Do we have time for this other annuity question I didn't have a chance to get to last week? Or do you want a quickie question that I'm going to have you answer? If I can control it, then we can do a quickie one. But we're already at an hour. This this one you're answering. Okay. So this one is a how to figure out net present value of a cash flow. But it kind of has to do with an annuity question. Okay. So she says, hi, Jim. I hope all is well. I've been listening to your podcast for a very long time, and I love it. I have a question regarding my variable annuity that comes with an income rider. I will be receiving guaranteed payments, hopefully if the insurance company does not go out of business, she put in parentheses, and she makes a good point, folks. Your annuity is backed by the claims-paying ability of the insurance company. I am much more inclined to buy an annuity from a a or an A minus rated company, I would never go below A minus. If all's what you're doing is buying a three, four, five year, multi year guaranteed annuity or MIGA, especially if you're putting in less than what the state guarantee amount is, even if that annuity company is owned by private equity, which a lot of them are, and based in Bermuda, which a lot of them are, where they have hokey accounting and they can play a lot of gimmicks. I'm okay with those types of companies for a three, four, five-year MIGA tops, but a lifetime guaranteed stream of income, I would be very cautious of using one of those companies because they have to be around for 20, 25, 30 years, hopefully. And that's what she's remarking. She's got an annuity. She gives her a withdrawal benefit, they call it. So uh, let's just say she had 500000 in it. They'll tell her, you can take, I'm just making this number up, $15,000 a year, no more than that. And as long as you take out $15,000 a year from this annuity, which is most likely inside an IRA, as long as you take it out of this annuity, if you live long enough and you run out of money in your annuity, we will continue to pay you even if your account balance is zero. That's the kind of annuity she's describing. So she goes on, Chris, and says, She receives $13,000 a year. No increase. This is level for the rest of my life. $13,000, that's it. I think she made it pretty clear. When calculating the actual value of this annuity, though, once invoked, in other words, once she turns it on, how can I calculate the value of that number. 
to me, I should just take $13,000, multiply it by how many years I think I'm going to live, and discount it for my inflation rate, which I estimate to be 3%. Would this be a correct calculation? Mm, Close. But you wouldn't add them all together. You'd actually discount each payment by the number of years between now and when the payment occurs. So essentially, this is a you have to deal with this in what the finance world calls an annuity. It's a $13,000 per year annuity. And you're going to have to use some type of assumed number of periods. This is how long you're believing you're going to live. And just to give people an example of this calculation, a $13,000 payment each year for, say, 25 years, all discounted at 3%, would be something along the lines of uh, $227,000, $226,000, a little over $226,000. So in other words, if you had an account with $226,000 in it that earned a guaranteed 3%, you could take out $13,000 a year from that account for 25 years and it wouldn't run out. It would run out on that very last payment that came out. Now, 13,000 times 25, just to give you some perspective, it's total cash flows about $325,000. But because you're not getting all those at once, you have to discount them in the world of finance. And she proposed discounting them at her assumed inflation rate of 3%. So if she was doing this calculation, she'd put in how many years she thinks she's going to collect it, uh, as the uh, N, as the number of periods, you'd have each payment being 13000 and then discount that annuity, that series of payments at 3%, not adding them all together and then discounting them all at 25 years or something like that. That wouldn't be appropriate. You'd have to get them on the timeline or timed properly. And uh, there's a variety of online calculators you can do that with. You can use a handheld financial calculator, but there's plenty of calculators out there that could calculate what's called the present value of an annuity. And they would ask you those exact things. How many annuity payments do you expect to get? What's the amount of the annuity payment? And what's the discount rate that you want to apply to it? And if you put in, you know, 25 and $13,000 a year and a 3% discount rate, you'd get what I just told you, 226,000 and some change. Right. And I'm glad you mentioned there's plenty of calculators and, um, just like Chris said, look up a good one, mm-hmm. uh, present value of an annuity or present value of an income stream or whatever they're going to call it. And then just change your life expectancy around. Mm-hmm. And you might want to take the average of that. That's the only thing that I would recommend. If you think you're going to live 25 years, maybe go out 30 and 20. So run 10 scenarios, get 10 values and divide by 10. And that might be a, a reasonable expectation because it's so impossible to tell you what the value of it is, uh, because we don't know how long you're going to live. Anyways, a little bit of of info on that. The only thing that would screw that up, I think, to the, the direct calculation, Chris, is remember there is still, unlike a traditional annuity where nothing is paid out at your passing, in this, there could still be some cash value left in the annuity. Mm-hmm. And I think that would affect what the true value is. And I don't know if those calculators have that ability to actually say, hey, we're going to help you determine the net present value of a withdrawal benefit annuity. How much do you have in there? What's the interest crediting? In other words, how much is that annuity going to earn? What are they allowing you to take out every year? 
how many years do you think you're going to live and what discount rate do you want to apply uh, to the dollars you take out. Yeah, that could all be done in Excel, but I don't know offhand a calculator out there that is designed to do that easily for a consumer. Right, because that's the only difference I want to say. Most of those calculators are going to assume this is not a withdrawal benefit right. annuity. This is just a lifetime stream yeah. of income in a more traditional annuity where there's no benefit after you die. But in a withdrawal benefit annuity, your account balance is yours. They're only giving you your money in a withdrawal benefit annuity. And we're going to talk much mm -hmm. deeper on these in another show in the future. So they're only giving you your money. It's only when the annuity reaches zero, which will be some point in the future, only when it reaches zero is the money coming from them. So if you died while the annuity still had value, you would receive or your state would receive some money. And that needs, I think, to be factored in to the net present value. Anyways, big rabbit hole there we could go down. My only question is, I'm not quite sure what she's trying to do that for. True. What importance is it to her right. to know what the value of this income payment is? I mean, there's clearly a reason she doesn't explain it. But I don't know if you're overanalyzing it. I don't know where you would put that value and how that's going to matter, what the net present value of this would be. Um, to me, I would just be looking at it saying, hey, I got $13,000 a year for the rest of my life, no COLA adjustment. It's much more valuable to me now, much less value to me in the future. And apply that 13000 level, no COLA adjustment against your minimum dignity floor needs and combine it with any Social Security and pension payments you have and just look at it that way as the value being 13000 a year with no COLA adjustment. Trying to figure out what the present value is worth each year throughout your retirement, I don't know what you're trying to achieve with that. Yeah. If you do, opine on it. If you don't, we can wrap up the show. Nope, we'll wrap up here, and uh, maybe she can reach back out to us and let us know why she was trying to do that calculation, and maybe we can have a little more uh, uh, input on how to do a proper calculation for what she's trying to achieve. But for now, uh, we just don't know. So thanks, everybody, for listening and sending us questions. If you want to send in your own questions, send them to Jim directly. Jim at jimhelps.com is the email. Put in the subject line that is a question for the podcast, and he'll keep his eyes open for those. Jim, you have a nice weekend, and we'll be back with everyone else next week with a brand new show. You have listened to Jim on the radio, read his quotes in the media, and enjoyed his banter on iTunes. But even now, you may wonder what sets Jim Salmier and Associates apart from other financial planning companies. The answer is quite simple. Jim's diverse team of professionals specializes in retirement planning. They form a lifelong relationship with you and measure their success not through product sales, but through the security and prosperity you may achieve in your retirement. Jim's entire team shares his unwavering commitment to placing their clients' best interests first while offering their services at fair prices with full disclosures. The professionals at Jim Saulnier & Associates are available to assist you with your retirement planning needs. Visit jimhelps.com to schedule your complimentary coffee and a second opinion meeting. That's jim, H-E-L-P-S, dot com. Or call 970-530-0556.
The retirement and IRA show represents the words and views of the show hosts exclusively and should not be construed as investment, legal, or tax advice. All information is believed to be from reliable sources. However, we make no representation as to its completeness or accuracy. All economic and performance information is historical in nature and is not indicative of any future results. Any indices mentioned on the show are unmanaged and cannot be invested indirectly. Diversification and asset allocation strategies do not assure profit or protect against loss. Never make any investment or financial decisions based on information offered on this show without first consulting your financial, legal, or tax advisor. Financial planning services offered through Jim Solnier & Associates, LLC, a registered investment advisor. 